Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Greg Kutsona is a religion researcher out of Chico State in California. We met at the same American Academy of Religion session where I met Jesse Knippel, my guest from the ex-evangelical or post-evangelical episode. Greg and his colleagues are involved in a big research program looking at how 18 to 30-year-olds understand science, faith, and the interaction between the two. If you've been enjoying episodes where my guests sort of peel back the curtain on this massive cultural shift that we seem to be caught up in, then you will also love this conversation. So let's get into it. Greg, thank you so much for joining me today. You are kind of like my favorite type of person to talk to because you've got the, 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 the ministry background, the faith background, but the active faith today, but then also the scholarly interest and the kind of academic bona fides 
you're you're like my Captain Planet, you know, all the all the rings <laughs> together. So and you're from California. It's true. Yeah. Well, I like being your favorite kind of person to interview, by the way. That's that's awesome. It's a great way to start. I just do that to like endear you to me so that ne- then I can get away with some crazy shit later in the interview. Right. You can ask me all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so we're talking about emerging adults, young adults. Uh, that's sort of the the survey data population, right, that we're talking about today. Can you just first of all define that? Like what ages are we talking about and and why – why are the markers put there by social scientists? Yes. Uh, well, I, I'm defining emerging adults along with other researchers as 18 to 30-year-olds. And we're talking about two generations, by the way, millennials right. and then iGen or Gen Z would be the mm-hmm. second one, the younger one. So I have two daughters. One's 25, one's 22. The older daughter's a young millennial, the younger daughters, an old iGen or Gen Z. One time I was on a an interview on the radio in our local NPR station, our national public radio station, and the interviewer said, Greg, what is this emerging adult thing? You know what I mean? Like, uh, And for the record, you know, I'm a middle-aged guy, so it can, sound, it can sound or look kind of pejorative to people. Like, well, you 20-somethings haven't really grown up yet, right? Um, so I just want to clarify why that title has come about and what it means. Jeffrey Arnett is a psychologist who, in the year 2000, came up with this idea. And essentially, it's because the five markers that have defined adulthood, sociologically and perhaps psychologically, are not being met. That language even sounds like it's some sort of uh, moral category. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, by age 30. So the two main ones are getting married and having children. That That's the most definitive ones there. Yeah, this stuff changes over time. It changes for all kinds of reasons. Those are mostly not character of the young individuals. You know, it's like home ownership, for instance, right, is one that's vastly changed because I don't I mean, I, I don't know. I'm guessing here, but like the population bubble of baby boomers and I don't know, tech money and other kinds of of just like real estate changes uh, and I'm sure some banking changes that I'm not that aware of and yada, yada, yada made it such that people who are younger have a hard time purchasing homes at the same age their parents did. Right. And so that's not anybody's fault, but it's a, it's a thing that does have an effect on your psychology, right? Like once you, I've noticed a difference once I owned a home, of course, I own some small percentage of it. But once I did that, you think about your property differently. You think about your stuff differently than when you're young, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the main things that really comes out of this is what um, some researchers have called uh, living in between. You know, like there's a sense of liminality. You're a psychologist. And I think you also. Well, I'm not. Hold on. I am. I am one and a half semesters into the. <laughs> Into a psychology doctorate. I am not a psychologist, but I'm interested in psychology. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, I don't know. I've heard your other podcasts and you've got a lot of good insights. I fake it pretty good. Yeah. uh, Well, well, you know, so, um, you know, it's this, it's a sense of being in between and the liminality ideas, the liminal means you're at this, actually doorway is what it literally comes from in the root. So you're between things, you know, like you feel in between and that is really significant We'll get into what that means for yeah. religious or spiritual life. I'm but already just going in general, there in my head, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's like you're just choosing among different things. And uh, in all kinds of ways, relationships, you know, the average age of marriage, I believe, is 28 in the United States for men and 26 for women. So that means you're 
working with uh, who you're going to be with long term. Uh, like you said, home ownership, uh, especially in California, is really deferred. You know, um, yeah, Washington then, as well. Yep. And then, as far as like church work or church life, most churches program that you are in a family or you have a family. Right. So, in other words, like you're great until you're uh, out of high school, and then you're kind of left out, as they might say, a spare and not a pair until you're married, right? So that middle zone, which is getting much longer uh, with all these different financial, economic changes, sociological changes, puts people in this uh, liminal, this transitional space for a long, long time. Yeah, that's just something – I just want to earmark that to maybe come back to as we're talking. It it strikes me that there might be a kind of an unseen force in all this conversation about deconstruction in the church today that maybe there's something about people roughly my age – um, and in their 20s and stuff where they're more comfortable, maybe not even comfortable, regardless of how they feel about it, they're more used to, that's what I mean to say, being in between places. And so going, well, I don't quite fit with uh, what I was brought to believe, brought up to believe, but I don't quite fit with like this sort of liberal, you know, non-theistic secularity culture. I'm just kind of in between. There, there might be a little bit lost in translation where – Parents of those people are like, I, could ne- I couldn't be in a liminal space like that for any length of time. And their kids not having as much problem with it because they're kind of used to it. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that's really accurate. Um, I mean, and the other thing I think is just the, the key insertion in life. Well, I'll just tell you, it takes me back to a conversation. The key insertion is the smartphone. And I remember yeah. it was like 1999. I was in New York City living there. And this friend of mine who worked for Hewlett Packard, Alan, uh, he and I were, Alan and I were having coffee together. And he said to me something that I'll never forget uh, because it was one of those moments like, you know, the Titanic has hit the iceberg, but you don't yet know it's going to sink, right? It's like this is not all, all doom and gloom, but there's like, Alan's telling me something that I didn't realize how significant it was for like five more years. But he said, you know, HP's talking about moving computing to the phone. And I'm like, wow, what would that be like? I mean, this guy's completely credible. It wasn't like I doubted him, but I'm like, I don't even understand that, you know? Yeah. So I had like a, uh, either one of those little tiny Nokias or something. So I had no space for a screen. And Yeah, you were like, hold on a second. I got to finish this game of Snake. <laughs> Um, no, yeah. but I, yeah, I think that there's something about that. And I, I read, uh, coddling of the American mind, the mm-hmm. Lukianoff and height book. And that book is kind of about like call out culture and liberal campuses and all of the protests and stuff. But one thing they talk about the reason that I gen gen Z is referred to as I gen is because sociologists have found like really significant breaks in the data that have to do with the introduction of the smartphone to some kind of you know, basically it hits a kind of a critical mass and then people of a certain age are growing up with smartphones, whereas yeah. their siblings two, three, two, three years older didn't grow up with smartphones. And that's changing the way that they process information, think of themselves, see the world, interact with their friends, you know, learn all. It just changes like it's it's incredible what it changes about how they interact with the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think. That relating it uh, to this, the faith perspective or just the ability to have a kind of um, uns- what would feel for me as an unsettledness, perhaps, 
I'm kind of a late baby boomer, quite late baby boomer. I mean, I don't, I'm always saying that because I don't fully identify with the baby boomer generation. But anyway, I mean, what self respecting person could at this point? (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) It's a bad moment culturally for boomers like the last couple years. Oh, totally. I'm not going to blame you. We're behaving badly, that's for sure. We're doing all kinds of things like uh, pillaging the Social Security you know, funds and all that sort of stuff. So believe me, I, I'll take it. Um, and actually, I do want to say, I think some of the complaints about uh, millennials are our fault as parents. So we can get back to that, too. But let me just add that. So what I, what I see in, you know, like my children and my students, because I'm a, a university professor, is the ability to just manipulate and manage an incredible amount of information without saying, I need some sort of overarching framework to understand it. It's like, I'm just going to work with this stuff and in some ways play with it, you know, and other times like be overwhelmed by it. But I'm not going to try to make it some kind of comprehensive worldview or anything. That is fascinating because I recognize I might be of the last cohort that still wants to synthesize stuff. Or it might be – I think it's also my personality. Like the way that I learn, I am awful with discrete bits of information. So like I am just like horrendous at biology and anatomy class. But I can handle anything I can put into a system. I can figure out where it goes. And so, you know, like this End Times series that's airing right now that we're, we're going to end up talking about a little bit, uh, we're recording this probably a couple months before this is going to come out. I'm working on the follow-up to that. I'm, like, trying to answer this question of, like, well, why did they believe – why did our parents believe this? And I, I need a kind of narrative. I need a story. I need a structure so that I can know where to put things. And it's really interesting to think – that actually this might be the first sign that like my group is getting old, you know, that like maybe <laughs> my son who's about to be born will not need that, right? That he just right. will swim in this world that is saturated with information in a like not just a slightly differently, but like very differently. Right. Well, two things to that. One, I would just say from what I've heard of you. I think of you as probably an Enneagram 5 or uh, an intuitive in Myers-Briggs, like that ability to synthesize or there's connectedness in the uh, Strength Finders profile. And that's a really amazing skill. Um, it seems to me the way you're able to bring a lot of stuff together. Um, you, so. you, I don't know if you're right about Enneagram. I always say the Enneagram isn't real, but I'm a 7. Um, yeah. That's kind yeah. of – that's how I like to answer that. But yeah. I am – but you're right. Myers-Briggs, my largest score by far is I'm like a skyrocketed N. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, maybe that's what it is. And, and maybe are, you, are you also a thinker on Myers-Briggs? Uh, yeah, I am an ENTP. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. And I, but I was an ENFP when I was younger. So I'm not okay. – I'm kind of on the line in that. I actually yeah. probably will have to take that again for a personality class that I'm in right now, but I haven't done it yet. You're so, kind of cuspy on that way. Can I just say one thing yeah, also please. about where I think things are moving in terms of what you said about your uh, your child-to-be is I also think that the actual technology, the actual mechanisms will become more seamless. So right. um, you know, like for me, uh, this is a fun thing I love to tell my students. I grew up five miles away from Jobs and Wozniak developing the personal computer, but I did not use a personal computer till graduate school. So I didn't use one in undergrad. And my students just think that is the weirdest thing in the world. But, you know, you think of personal computers, they're not an intuitive thing. Like typing is not 
if I may say, evolutionarily natural to us. Now, when you get to a phone, it's a little bit more evolutionarily con- or connected to our evolutionary history because it's a little more seamless. Um, you're typing, but it's much smaller. It's not this. It's a little bit more of our life, our life skills. As we move into better voice recognition, it feels much more seamless. But I think the actual device will be perhaps a headset or just like an eyeglasses, like the Google Glass, or I don't know. I'm not that. I'm not yeah. a technologist, but. It will get more seamless. It will feel more like you and I talking or something, and that will really change the game, uh, I think, significantly. Yeah. Okay. So let's get let's start to apply this. We just we <laughs> we just spent twelve more minutes than I thought we would on this demographic stuff, but it's interesting, and I know it's going to come around to all this stuff. So, how many young people, emerging adults, eighteen to thirty year olds, are actually leaving the organized church? So there's a lot of panic about this. You'll see it referenced. But you actually probably know the numbers. Yeah. Well, I think you've referenced it in other podcasts. But the number that's commonly thrown around from different reports is 35 to 40 percent of 18 to 30-year-olds. When asked, which box will you check, you know, Christian, Buddhist, neo-pagan, et cetera, or none of the above, 35 to 40 percent will check none of the above. And it seems to be increasing as uh, people age out of, you know, as people die, basically, and, and younger yeah. generations take a larger percentage of our population or whatever I'm saying there. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so more millennials, more Gen Z, that sort of thing. It, but what's interesting about that is like my understanding is that the number of like atheists is not dramatically rising. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as the research I've read, it's about 70% of these nuns are not religiously affiliating. Uh, I'm just saying that slowly, just in case it's not a, a language that is useful uh, or a term that's yeah uh, people know. And it could be confused with the with the uh, monastics who are yeah, female, the Catholic nuns, right? Nuns, yeah, <laughs> N-O-N-E-S. Anyway, the, they're not all becoming atheists. Like it's not – it's more that people are opting out of organized religion, but they're not necessarily opting back in to the opposite of organized religion. That's right, right. Yeah, so about 70% of uh, nuns say they believe in God or a higher power and – Many will go to churches, you know, primarily we're still church-based in the United States, so but it could be synagogue, it could be mosque or whatever, or ashram. So they may still go to a church or go to whatever kind of religious service, but they don't affiliate. So I think it's the lack of desire of affiliating, A, with a religion, with one religion. That's the first thing, I think. Um, I think there's a lot more blending of religious inputs or spiritual inputs. And then secondly... It's the uh, desire not to affiliate or the, the lack of desire to affiliate with an institution, especially religion. Uh, religious institutions are seen quite skeptically by 18 to 30-year-olds. I was just going to say, I mean, just across the board, it's not a great couple of years for institutions here in the United <laughs> States. I mean, really, Trump and Bernie both are sort of examples of that on the right and left, respectively, right? That's right. Well, and do you mind if I do a short political statement sure. related to this? Because I think it's really significant for the future. There's good data to support that the hardline right political association with conservative Christianity is leading to more people becoming nuns in our country. You because- don't say, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was obvious, but yeah. there's actually some data yeah. on it. You know what I mean? Well, that one's interesting, and I wonder if we'll get to it, but that's a it's a thing I heard from people my age when we were younger, when it was the moral majority, right. and it was like anti-Clinton talk. 
Uh, but now with Trump, it seems to have had like almost like a doubling or something. And somebody could quantify that. But um, right. it seems right. like an even stronger sort of visceral reaction against the combination of Republican politics and Christianity. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And evangelicals are losing members just like mainliners are, according to the statistics I've been seeing. So that would be another, you know, support for that connection, that yeah. correlation. But so what we're talking about today mostly is not the, the politics thing, but it's the science thing. So mm-hmm. what is the evidence that church being perceived as, quote, anti-science is a major contribution to people leaving the church? This is something that I have said before. I believe it. Uh, but I and I've seen some data, but I'm not nearly as familiar with it as you are. Yes, I mean, I think the clearest place that you can see it is um, in David Kinnaman's book, uh, "You Lost Me," which is now I was just reviewing. It's nine years old, so it's that's either really revelatory or, or interesting in another way. But yeah. he and his team discerned six major reasons that people are leaving the church, and uh, one of them was the church is seen as anti-science. So I could mention other you know reasons I believe that. I, I guess the the other main ones would be. The anecdotal work, just you know, just talking with students and what they think about the church and the way it perceives science and why they don't affiliate. Uh, I teach a science and religion class for undergraduates every year at uh, California State University Chico, and so that's some of the anecdotal. And then I did this survey project called Science for Students and Emerging Young Adults, where we we did teaching and surveys with about 600 emerging adults and. So out of that, I've also done some qualitative interviews, which which further underline this connection between the church being seen as preventing its members from understanding good science and people leaving the church. Yeah, so that, that was actually my next question was to, to ask you about that science for students and emerging young adults. And, and you wrote a Huffington Post piece where you listed four surprises from that project. I believe when you wrote that it was ongoing. You can let me know if any of these surprises have changed as it's as it's continued to work, but I'd like to go through each of those four. So yeah, the first one the first one you list is about two thirds of young people perceive that there is indeed strong conflict in the world between science and religion, but two thirds also search for ways to either find collaboration between science and religion, that is, they're gonna go against the perceived uh, conflict or to separate them to do the Stephen Jay Gould non-overlapping magisteria move so as to basically lessen or resolve the conflict. So that is kind of interesting and surprising. I would think if two thirds of people thought that there was strong conflict, they would just pick one. But it doesn't seem that doesn't seem to be what most people are doing. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, And to me, this was really a fascinating Dichotomy that I really had to struggle with these two major uh, researchers. So the first is Kyle Longest and Christian Smith, and I think Christian Smith's been on your show, if I'm not mistaken. I, ha- I haven't interviewed him, but he gets name dropped about every ten episodes yeah. <laughs> for some reason or other. Yeah, yeah. And I did interview uh, Michael O. Emerson, his co-author on Divided by Faith. So we did oh, get a okay. lot of his work through yes. through uh, Dr. Emerson. Uh, okay. Okay. Good. Yeah, so um, they did this uh, study um, in 2011 where they – I think it was about – it was around 2,400 18 to 23-year-olds, so early emerging adults, undergraduates essentially. And they asked the question, do you agree or strongly agree with the statement 
the teachings of religion and science ultimately conflict. And they found, or also disagree, obviously. And they found that uh, about 70% said they agree or strongly agree with that statement. So that was 2011. And then um, Christopher Scheidel in the same year, who's a researcher that has worked with a, a friend and a really leading researcher in this area, Elaine Howard Eklund. Anyway, Christopher did this, Scheidel did this separately, but he looked at this spirituality and higher education survey that they do at UCLA of uh, 10,800 undergraduates and analyzed one particular question. So it's all about spirituality, but there's one question that asked the uh, students, again, 18 to 23 year olds, undergraduates, to decide, you know, what is the best for you or for me is the statement. The best relationship between science and religion is X. So it would be one category is independence or collaboration. And then the two other categories are conflict with essentially science winning or conflict with religion winning. And uh, about the same percentage, 70%, broadly speaking, or, or 69%, agreed with that first statement. The, uh, the best relationship is uh, independence or collaboration. That's interesting. I mean, I, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but like, are people just not wanting to answer a question by saying the best thing is conflict? You know, like, is there a kind of like nice guy survey taker bias there? Yeah. Well, here's what it, that could be. It definitely could be. And uh, again, I know you're in the psychological sciences. Again, meaning we've talked about before we started. Um, and so you might you might be able to slice it a little differently. That's not my uh, specialization is all this. But what did pull out for me in this was is the difference between for myself and for the world out there. So the yeah. longest and Smith one was essentially a world out there question. Right. You know, do the, do the teachings of religion and science, you could say as institutions ultimately conflict. So you hear about that a lot, the, the conflict. And uh, as people in this demographic, as we talked about earlier, are so connected with the internet and with smart smartphones, the internet rewards people who are high conflict people. You know, the louder you get, yeah. uh, the more, you know, likes and hits yep. you get. And, and social media and social media and cable news and, you know, all that stuff have only added to that dynamic, right? Right. And so, you said that yeah. in another podcast that, you know, you're always going to have an MS, MSNBC and a Fox News. You're not going to have the middle of the road people because it just isn't rewarded by the marketplace, nor by, in this case, the social media world. Yep, that's true. And so that is interesting. So I can buy that, that a young person, the average young person perceives, yeah, they are in conflict because that is the message that gets broadcasted the loudest, either from the science lovers or the science haters or the religion lovers, or the religion haters. But then them thinking, like, can't we get along? Like not being satisfied with that as a state of affairs, basically. Right. So, and I think that second one, you're right, is the why can't we just get along? I think it's a little bit developmental. I, I find my undergraduates, undergraduates to be really fatigued by the culture wars and by the, they're, they're not quite as inured to the idea that we just fight a lot, you know, in this world. Uh, I'm not saying they should, people, this I think is a contribution of right. the demographic. Yeah. Um, but also, it's something that changes, it seems to me. But I also think it's that question of, you know, for me personally, like, what do you actually feel is right in your own lives? And uh, I think most people don't want conflict, honestly. Um, and we're going to get to that later, I believe, when we talk about the future and the, right. what the nuns will do for the future. But I think the, essence, the essence is most people 
would want these two either to collaborate and work together and not be in conflict or would like them to be independent and not in conflict. But they don't want conflict, I think, is what the, the second question asks. So for me, the best relationship is collaboration or independence, i.e. non-conflict. Yeah, that's interesting. The second thing you were surprised by is that concerns about sexuality and gender issues, which we would normally think of as a social issue or a moral issue maybe, have actually become a science and religion issue for this generation. How did you find that out? Hmm. One of the things I've learned from, uh, again, from uh, this friend, colleague, Elaine Howard Eklund, who's really a specialist in social science, is when you do surveys and you create hypotheses about your surveys, you say, well, what do you, here's what I think I'm going to find. Um, she and other scientists have helped me be really sensitive to, okay, I've got this hypothesis of what I think I'm going to find, but here's the data that goes a totally different direction. So um, when I was doing these surveys, I'd ask students in these, especially the, the 43 qualitative hour-long surveys I've done, I asked students, you know, what are the top topics for you? Or just to talk about faith and science. When I went to start my PhD in this field in the early 90s, the answer should have been evolution. It should have been faith and reason. Yeah. And that Mir- sort of thing. Miracles, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Divine action right. miracles, Divine action, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Now... One of the very first questions that, or sorry, answers that came out was sex and gender. And we can define those in various ways. I mean sex mainly in terms of the relationships between two people uh, sexually and then, you know, your orientation in that sense. And then gender, I would use more for identity, uh, you know, how, what, what gender you identify with or don't identify with either or, or a particular gender, let's put it that way. Um, those are issues that were very clearly scientific for the people I talked with and was a complete surprise to me. I mean, that's interesting. So I wonder – I'm trying to think of why that may have shifted. Two things come to mind. One is that for me, learning about intersex people was one of the I, – I would say I was, I was already gay-affirming in my theology at that point. This is maybe – I'm trying to think. I know where I was living. So six or seven years ago – when I just learned more about that. But it, it put a really interesting and different angle on the conversation about male and female he created them, right? Going, oh, well, except for this roughly one in 1,000 babies where like a, a medical professional's opinion is needed to determine gender uh, at birth and then a smaller percentage of those like actually don't have conforming uh, reproductive systems and genitalia – to one or the other, right? So, And that's kind of separate from the question of if gender and sex need to be linked or whatever. So that's one idea I have, and that's very much a scientific question, right? So intersex, this is my uncharitable take. There are conservatives who want to deny that intersex means anything about what the text tells us God wanted, but I think anybody taking it seriously has to go, no, this presents an empirical problem. With that kind of a view, you could say it's the sinful world or something like that, but you have to say something. And then the second one is that I think that the gay rights movement has been pretty successful at making it more of a scientific question. So before we knew – I can remember from being a kid in the 90s and hearing about where's the gay gene, you know, and, and that was kind of before epigenetics was as well understood as it is now that like not – genes don't always – express or they don't even always express to the same amount as they might express and 
there's other things going on. But even just that idea of looking for the gay gene or whatever and thinking about biological factors, other scientific environmental factors, I mean, do you think that sort of they won that public perception battle uh, better with, with young people better than with older people? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I pretty much agree with Maybe I hate to say it, but I pretty much agree with everything you said. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. I mean, I will just say, given the age that I am in my now late 50s, the speed at which uh, people move from Defense of Marriage Act in, I believe, 1998 to the acceptance by the Supreme Court of gay marriage in, was that 2015? Yeah, was 2015, Obergefell, I think, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, that is a, an incredible cultural shift that in 98, very few people who are vocal would say that is, that's understandable. They would say, wow, that makes sense. And I think I confused my sentence there. And it just changed so radically by 2015. So I think that's a, it was a major cultural shift that occurred. So I think that definitely is the context in which this conversation is happening about science and sexuality. Yeah, it's just, in, it's interesting because there's different ways of looking at the gay rights movement and and one way that like Andrew Sullivan, the the gay rights activist and, and conservative political commentator has talked about it is that uh, the original gay rights movement mostly took a page out of the MLK playbook and mm-hmm. basically just emphasized common humanity of mm-hmm. like, you guys get married. Can we get married? Mm-hmm. And kind of left it at that. That's not really a scientific argument, though. That is mm-hmm. a moral argument. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so – so if you thought that that was the primary focus of that, you, you might go, wow. So either way, that was a really effective campaign, right? Right. Uh, that and then probably I would say to just like people's – I don't know. I think there's a kind of a moral progress that happens in societies and also just a kind of like as it becomes more normal to be you know non-heterosexual, then people have more friends and social connections to people who are non-heterosexual and therefore they – you know, have more compassion for them or they identify with them more, et cetera. So you get these kind of cascading snowball effects and stuff. But most of that stuff isn't really science. So it's still a pretty interesting finding. Right. It really is an interesting finding. I would say, to make a more systematic statement, I think science should inform but not dictate our ethics. And this is going to compress a lot of conversations I've had with, with scientists. They would say that sexuality, like other human behaviors and traits, is not determined by genetics, but it has strong correlations with genetics. So twin studies are some of the easiest, like identical twins are are clones, right? And we realize there is a strong correlation if people are same-sex oriented that their identical twin will be. But it's not 100%, right? I can't remember the number, but it's something like six times more likely or something like that. Right, exactly. It's, it's, it's It's obviously statistically significant, yeah. Right. And we also recognize that uh, science by itself doesn't tell us, well, this is a naturalistic fallacy at some level, right? If it isn't is, it doesn't make it an ought. So we, for example, to, we have positive and negative behaviors. We, men tend to be aggressive. That's, I think, often a negative behavior. Human beings tend to be altruistic at some level. That's a positive behavior in my moral uh, framework. And so we can't really say those are both natural things. We can't say that something being natural is good or bad right. per se. Yeah, I've been thinking about that with regard to becoming a psychologist and trying to place it in the framework of the much greater amount of work I've done in theology and ethical considerations, mostly theology. But yeah, I did study philosophy in undergrad. And and the way that I've been kind of kicking it around these days is like I'm learning psychology as basically a tool. It's a means. 
it is like how the sausage is made and how we keep living. I still need a purpose and a moral framework to guide how I'm going to use that information or how I'm going to help other people use that information or what they're going to come to me for, right? They're going to have some purpose. And so I think of it as like, well, it's a little bit of both because if you understand your psychology better, you will understand yourself better, like what your motivations are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you also are going to have some goal and that's going to be morally tinged in some way. So for instance, you might say, my marriage is falling apart and I don't want my marriage to fall apart. Therefore, I'm going to go to therapy and I'm going to learn some tools to make me a better spouse so that my marriage will not fall apart. So psychology is the set of tools to accomplish the end of I would like my marriage to not fall apart, which you have regardless of the psychology, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and I think just similarly here, I think we need to decide within moral frameworks uh, whether we can have a good society with people who are oriented toward the same sex and marrying and so on or not. And uh, that isn't by itself a, a scientific category. So, I mean, that's what right. makes this complicated. One, on the one hand, I, it is a surprise. And I, I say this to churches or other institutions that want to talk about science, that it's going to come up, you know, the it being sex and yeah. gender. And also, I think I've, I have a, a kind of cautionary approach that we can't say science is going to determine and dictate things, but we would really do better to understand the science and how that can inform good ethical decisions. Rather than talking about the most recent patron-only episode, this week I want to mention another way that the patron-only Facebook group has been helpful for me this last week, and I hope helpful for everyone else as well. So I've started thinking about and kind of working on some kind of resource for newly deconstructing Christians, sort of more focused on the emotions and concerns that naturally come up as that process begins. If you're aware of the sort of... um, gay adult uh, program messaging program for like teenagers that's called it gets better it gets better basically that for deconstructing Christians which started out as a tweet as almost kind of a joke but I'm actually working on it anyway I'm working on it and I started a thread in the Facebook group asking people to describe those early feelings and questions as well as they could and I've gotten some incredible feedback it's it's been both meaningful and interesting to read these stories from people in the group and it has sparked some internal conversations uh, between members of the group as well so I guess this is an ad for the Patreon via the Facebook group which you do need to be a patron to be a part of but it is also a thank you to the incredible people who comprise this group and who make it so valuable so thank you guys you help me out more than you realize uh, to become a patron, you go to patreon.com slash dancoke, or you have permissionpod.com and click become a patron. It's five bucks a month. If you really can't afford that at this season of life, there is a sliding scale. Please email me. You have permissionpodcast at gmail.com. All those links are in the show notes. Uh, yeah, so it's at least two exclusive episodes, access to the Facebook group and more. Okay, back to my chat with Greg. So your third surprise from this work is that concerns and questions about technology 
have become central to the faith and science discussion. Mm -hmm. This is something you maybe would have predicted in the 90s. I mean, I grew up in the milieu of like anti-stem cell rhetoric, um, you know, sort of aborted fetuses and science rhetoric. Maybe that's just because my community was was very pro-life. And and then, of course, (laughs) to bring the end time stuff back into it, uh, microchips being implanted in the forehead or the back of the hand. As I say in the – I think in episode one, anytime Visa came out with some new technological breakthrough, that would get passed around like a conspiracy email chain. So I'm familiar with some of that. That That's sort of what I would have been familiar with as a kid. I'm curious how that's changed for young adults, if it's that or if it's something else or whatever. It's a great, great question. You know, for, partly for me, this is a little bit of an inter it's, – it's intra-science and religion discussion question because the purists who talk about science want science to be different from technology, that technology is a derivative of science. Um, so the uh, – let's say the cell phone is derivative from quantum physics and right. yeah. all that sort of stuff. Electrical um, theory, yeah, whatever, yeah. Exactly, all that sort of thing. Um, I just don't think that's sustainable and uh, – theoretically, first of all, theoretically, because science and technology are becoming so much more closely connected. I, I would definitely put that in with things like genetic engineering, right. um, artificial intelligence. I think those Various things... bioethics stuff, yeah. Totally, right. If you get all into the yeah stuff that like Ray Kurzweil talks about and others, it's very much technological but connected with science. Um, so I think those categories are just blurring because of the way these these two ideas or, or groups, uh, I mean, science and technology are actually becoming closer together. But even more with um, the 18 to 30 year olds that I have you know, ministered to as a pastor, that I've t- I'm teaching as a college professor, and that I just know because of my kids' friends and some of my own friends, honestly, that they don't really see this big distinction. And so if uh, whatever community, if it's a religious community or just a, you know, a community in, in, in a city or something, wants to talk about religion and science, make sure you're going to talk about technology. Make sure you're going to include that. And uh, I think it's partly because technology is just such a part of the life of 20-somethings. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Let, let's go to the fourth one. Religion and science are becoming increasingly pluralistic. Now, anyone who listens to this show knows that I am interested in and very aware of the idea of religion becoming more pluralistic. Later on, we're going to talk about living in the information age and sort of the effect of Wikipedia on people's sort of religious imagination. Uh, Also living in more urban centers that are more populated with people of different faiths. I don't know what you even mean by science is becoming pluralistic. So can we start there? Sure, yeah. I mean, partly this is that the discussion of religion and science as a discipline is right. becoming more pluralistic. Right, so it's partly how am I reading the, the sentence structure, yeah. Right, and I also want to make just a little discount factor, which is I am not a trained scientist. So I am a philosopher of science, a theologian of science, etc. So this has come from reading scientists and spending as much time as I possibly can talking with scientists. But having said that, I think one of the one of the interesting things about the English language is we use science as a singular, like science is an X. Whereas in other uh, languages, uh, I know French, you talk about the science of something, the science of physics, the science of biology. Even in British English, you talk about mathematics or maths. They put a plural yeah, maths, on math. Right. Yeah. So the idea is you have different kinds of math even, right? So... 
I do think that science has a strong unity in terms of its methods and its approach. But uh, one of the things that, for example, Einstein showed is that we need to take our methods and apply them to the particular object of study we're looking at. Right. So he like came up with various ma- different mathematics to work with different physical uh, realities. And uh, similarly, it's not like if you're, especially if you're going to include the human sciences, you can't say that uh, I don't know what Justin Barrett does with cognitive science is the same as what uh, I don't know Daryl Falk does with biology or yeah. Um, you know, Francis Collins does with genetics. Those genetics, are different yeah. things and they have different methods. And so as we get more developed in these different forms of science or sciences, they become more pluralized and have a difficulty talking with one another. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. But then if we take science and religion as the discrete noun of the sentence and we <laughs> right. say that conversation, the science and religion conversation is becoming more pluralistic. What do you mean by that? I'm very intrigued. Well, there's a couple different things. The first thing is that uh, I refer to this earlier. We don't have what I call an LP religion, where you just take down the LP and you play it, you know, from in, in a in a series from beginning to end. A same vinyl artist. vinyl record, right? The, yeah, the vinyl record. Yes. Yeah. Although they're coming back, I hear they're we. Really I, making... Yeah, behind me is my uh, collection. Kind of, kind of got too many. Yeah. Oh, I, I love it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not like that. It's more like the. Digital streaming or Spotify. Spotify, yeah. Yeah. So because of that, we have – and there's just much more comfort among 20-somethings. But I'm going to bring in a whole bunch of different inputs based on you know my time in life, even my mood for the day. And this is spiritual religious inputs. So you don't just have like the five classic world religions of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. You just got you know Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, neo-pagan – Maybe sometimes even like secular Jewish, I mean secular as a category, then Jewish, then, uh, I don't know, New Age or something. And people are blending a lot more input. So the first thing is that just religion, if we can still call this religion, it's just – it's splintering in a really profound way. This is where it starts to get so interesting for me. So I feel like first we've got to address the like reflex that people have to he- – that people might have hearing that. Mm. especially the older you are and especially the more conservative you are. Yeah. I can hear the voice in my head uh, reacting violently against the idea of combining multiple religious traditions. Right. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Greg. Okay? Get mm-hmm. on board. No one gets to the Father except through me. And and also these kind of like, like the, the panic over uh, New Age spirituality – and Dungeons and Dragons and mm-hmm. all that stuff from from my childhood of like all of these are distractions. They are they are emphatically not paths to God. Right. There are not many paths up the mountain. So let, let's start there. But then I also I want to unpack this for a while. But let's start there. So yeah. what's the just what's the difference sociologically or psychologically or however you want to say it between usually someone of an older generation having that. Like, like, why doesn't a 19-year-old feel that same trepidation, yeah. I guess is my question. Yes, and I, I do want to just be clear that I'm doing being prescriptive and not descriptive here, right? You um, mean you're being descriptive and not prescriptive. Thank you. You're right. That's right. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Just to be clear, I am telling you to be a Buddhist, Taoist, neo-pagan. <laughs> right, exactly. No, of course, you're just describing that this is what people are doing, and I'm just, I'm just like, I... 
I can't even think about it without having that reflex of like giant red flag warning signs, you know, uh, rapture coming soon, blinking neon lights. You know, when I hear that or whatever, I'm right. I'm trying to silence those voices. Totally, for I get it, and, and I I totally understand that. Um, I mean, I, I, from a descriptive perspective, it's I think back to the insertion of the smartphone, and that's not the only thing. But I mean, the pluralism that my twenty somethings uh, have as part of their reality is just it's dizzying, and so yeah. you come to say, I'm going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, now, it's kind of okay. Can I insert this actually about yeah. that? Yeah, so yeah. I'm imagining your kids, or even just myself, like scrolling through Instagram, and I'm scrolling through Instagram stories, and I see my friend's daughter, and she did something funny. Then I click over one, and someone has posted an inspirational quote from an Instagram account that I'll make up called, you know, Taoist uh, on the go, and it's like <laughs> something from Lao Tzu, right? And then I'll go another one and it's someone at a concert and I'll go another one and it's like mindfulness for moms and they post that and it's a <laughs> it's some Buddhist teacher or whatever. So that's what it is like now on Instagram. I, I can't even imagine having gone through my Abeka curriculum in my evangelical high school, you know, in my whatever religion unit and every other page is an inspirational quote from Sri Ramakrishna or right. and then right. Jesus and right. then it's something from you know Al Ghazali or Rumi and then back to Paul like right. that that would not have ever happened and no one writing like a, a specifically Christian textbook especially in that mindset would ever do that but that is the the lived experience of someone coming of sort of coming of spiritual maturity and cognitive maturity today right right absolutely and i would just uh, just say for my own biography or autobiography that uh, i became a christian at 18 uh, i went to berkeley and became a christian which is sound like a incredible right uh, set up for a joke or something yeah um i went to, therefore to a very secular school in in a great sense of the word i love uc berkeley i grew up in the most in every survey it's the most secular environment the, the bay area the silicon valley so i don't have a lot of that um, background you know of of um, you know non pluralistic thinking that it's Christianity or kind of hell you know what I mean or damnation so that just to say I'm I'm comfortable with this world because that's what I've grown up with um, the other part of it though I think is you could put this in a Christian context very interestingly so when I was a pastor at our church here in Chico California uh, Bidwell Presbyterian Church I, I was a pastor there for twelve years and served as a college pastor as part of that. I would see my students, they'd say, oh, yeah, I love Bidwell. I go to Bidwell's, uh, I don't know, service that's got, you know, the music I like. And then I have a campus crusade Bible study. And then I do a mission trip with InterVarsity. You know what I mean? It's like, and in my world uh, of uh, college in the 80s, that would have sounded unfaithful. That would have sounded like plural yeah. marriage or something, right? You go to Reformed University Fellowship if you go to the Presbyterian Church. That's right. Right, exactly. So it, it's also a, a Christian reality. I mean, not, I'm not saying there aren't Christians who also don't also bring in right. other religious traditions. But if you just stayed within the Christian fold, it's not like you just do one thing anymore. Yeah, it, even at my age, being sort of in between your age and the people that you're surveying, the like jokes about Methodists and Lutherans or whatever oh, are gosh. funny, but they don't land for me. Like, no. But my mom and my dad each grow up, grew up in opposite sides of the Lutheran church, Missouri Synod and then the ELC or whatever. Yeah. And they had jokes about each other's 
Lutherans, right? So, right. yeah, and, and when I was in college, everybody was at Campus Crusade, but then they would go to all variety of churches, and there was, like, a ton of, like, hyper-reform people that were also at Campus Crusade, and I would spar with them, and, you know, I would go to Catholic Mass in the morning before class and then not go to Protestant church at all. It's funny, thinking back, I was 19, and that didn't feel weird to me. Uh, I mean, it it was a little weird. Like, people thought it was weird that I was going to Mass. But when I explained to them what I liked about it, they would go, okay, I mean, I, you know, I guess I can see that. But yeah, the the sort of, like, interdenominational arguments or whatever just seems petty to even to my generation. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's the kind of religious, uh, you know, this digital streaming or Spotify spirituality that I think is either within the Christian fold or, you know, just the world I see of the, especially the not religiously affiliating, which is really significant. And this goes back to the beginning of what we were talking about. When somebody says I'm not affiliating, it's because we're not affiliating with any one religious tradition. Interesting. So you're saying it is less of an exodus out of Christianity and more or some part of it anyway is simply not identifying with a particular stream of it. I think that's right. That's, that's, I actually haven't formulated that way, but I think that's accurate. And I would also say what you're seeing, um, I think, with the hardline religious right that's, that's emerging so vocally right now is uh, – I'll, I'll just make it the baby boomer fault since I'm I'm in that demographic. <laughs> it's baby boomers getting really nervous with this stuff, right? There's like yeah. – it's just really it's really hard to be a pluralistic thinker. Do you happen to know like so I've you know I've taken plenty of surveys in my day and filled out forms for census and various stuff like that. And sometimes you know you get the idea that this survey is trying to be accurate. So it'll say Protestant, Catholic, you know whatever or maybe it'll have Christianity other or something like that versus one that would just have Christian as the only thing. Do you know if there's a difference between the kind of results you get? I would think that if it has Christianity other, then that ought to capture everybody else mm. who does consider themselves a Christian but not a Presbyterian or a Methodist or whatever. But yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus or something. Are there surveys that don't have that Christianity other and only have – like like how do – you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. what, what, are, what are sort of the nuts and bolts of that and is there – do you find a difference? I don't know the answer to that question, Dan. Uh, so just to be honest, but I do have an d- answer that I think is related, perhaps. When I was talking with Jonathan Hill, who's a sociologist at Calvin College, he thinks that a lot of the rising of the nuns is the people that would associate with Christianity uh, because it was the thing you did. And what's what's really changed is it's not the thing you do anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's what we used to call churchianity, I think, you know, like— you don't really believe it. You just go uh, because it's what everybody's doing. Like and and like you said, this is before my time. Actually, if you were a Presbyterian Christianity person, you go to the Presbyterian Church, Lutheran, etc. Um, so I all think, the denominations had Christianity folks. That's correct. Right? Yeah, and well, I we think used now, to call them Sunday Christians. Was our derogative phrase, uh, derogatory phrase when I was an evangelical growing up? Or two timers, right? The yeah, Christmas yeah. Easter, Christmas yeah. Easter, yeah, right. Um, so I don't know. That's a really good question on the on the surveys. I just don't have the answer. But I think my my reading more generally uh, from the survey data I've seen is that people just really aren't wanting to affiliate with the Christian Church among other religions. But we're still like seventy percent Christian, you know. And if yeah. if it's still the majority of religious people are Christians in our country, and uh, 
So that's primarily what people are disaffiliating from. So much of the difference in pluralistic experience is access to information, right? Mm, so mm-hmm. can you just kind of quantify for us or even just qualitatively describe the difference between in terms of people of other faiths, access to information on the variety of faiths and lifestyles and cultures between someone born in 1950, which is mm-hmm. when my dad was born, mm-hmm. and someone born 50 years later in the year 2000 who is going to turn 20 this year. What is the – I mean it's got to just be vast, right? The, the lived experiential difference. Yes, yes. Oh, I think so. And uh, so I, I, of course, was born a little bit later than that. It's not, a, it's not entirely my personal experience, but I can talk about it from you know, research and surveys and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean it's, if you look at one of the great leaders of our country. I'm not, say, I'm not trying to uh, accuse you of being almost 70. I just thought <laughs> – it's a nice even number, and it happens totally. to be the year my dad was born. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine to be seventy, honestly, but I I just can't speak to it from a you know like a live perspective. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, you think about one of our great leaders, Martin Luther King, and his "I Have a Dream" speech, and he talks about Catholics, Protestants, and Jews. I think is the three people that he has in his one of his refrains. That was the fullness. That's of, the world of the world, and that was yeah. 1963, right? right. So. If and you, he's literally trying to expand the like that's a statement where he's going as expansive as he can. Right. And there are no Buddhists, there's no Muslims, there you know, right. there are no atheists in that, you know. Right. Yeah, I, totally. Wow. I mean, even though he of course was a contemporary of Malcolm X, you know, I mean bringing in like black Islam, right? Right. Nation of Islam. Right. So I think in the 50s the pluralism was the denominational pluralism by and large, and it Meaning was Meaning it was just different kinds of Christianity, right? Right. I mean, yeah. we, we may forget that in 1960, when Kennedy was elected, having a Catholic, for goodness right. sake, was a huge pluralistic move. A huge move, yeah. Uh, and so this, I guess I keep beating this drum of the Trump Christians, but one of the things that they go back to is, uh, and I just wrote this book on, the, on, on science and religion in the United States, so I did a lot of research the past couple of years on this, and it reminded me that really for most of our history, it's been white Protestants that have been the power brokers in our country. And that has generally been evangelical Protestants, historically. I'm just making a huge hundreds of years kind of uh, you know, overview. So the first pluralism of the 50s, you might say, uh, but even in the 1880s and so on with immigration was, okay, we're bringing in Catholics. Yeah, are we going to let Catholics into the power broking brokerage system, right? Right. And when Kennedy breaks in, uh, he's a Northern Catholic, right, an Irish Catholic, that's not a Southern Catholic, which is a different, also another slice of this pie. Mm. Um, it's like we've got pluralism at some level. Um, so I think the pluralism that was experienced was within the Christian fold, Jews who were prominent uh, you know, leaders already in our country. I only say that because it's, Judaism is really a small religion. We have 8 million Jews in our country. It's just a small percentage of our country. Just, yeah. Yeah, just percentage. That's my only point. But they're very – Jews tend to be very prominent in leadership positions. So – MLK and others were aware of that, but you really weren't seeing, you know, the pluralism of Asian religions, Indian religions, I mean, East Indian religions at that point, even though, of course, those religions came in with immigrants that we brought to bring, that we, meaning uh, Caucasian Americans, brought for the gold rush or whatever. And um, Oh, they were here. Yeah. They were definitely here, yeah. Also conspicuously absent from the MLK speeches, like Native Americans, right? Oh my goodness, yes. My, right, which my daughter- of course, if we asked him, he would include that. You know, it's not like he di- disregarded them or anything, but like 
it's 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 telling that he didn't feel the need to include them in that address. That's right. right? That's exactly my point. You got yeah. exactly what I'm saying. I'll just say I was going to say my my daughter is now a doctoral student in archaeology and anthropology, and uh, especially with Native American peoples, and so she's really sensitized me to. To me, that is just such a lost history, and like you said, it's not part of that yeah. religion, a part of religion in America in the 1950s and early 60s. But in 2000, yeah. you've got the internet. I'm going to go back to that. It's not the only answer, but it's like you can just see it out there. You see TV shows, you see streaming media, you see videos, and or you just Google religion and you get like 10,000 religions of the world or something, right? So it's just much more available to people. You, you go on Wikipedia. Let's say you're interested in uh, – you're like a Calvinist and someone's like, I'm an Arminian. And you go, oh, I wonder – so you click Ar- – you go Wikipedia Arminianism or something like that. And then within that one page, first of all, on the right-hand side, you have the taxonomy of Christianity. So whether or not you wanted to know how many flavors of Christianity was, the way that Wikipedia is organized, it'll go – Catholicism, da 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 da. Protestantism, da 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 da. Couple things down. Arminianism, right? And you go, oh, it's so it's one thing in these fifty things, or however many there are, and that kind of a thing. I think my generation is the generation that we came of age as those structures, those organizational and informational structures were being codified, right? And so we're kind of. We've been dealing with them in real time, but a 19-year-old, those are already been codified by the time they're coming of age. They're natives. They're natives. And so they're digital natives, meaning they can use technology, but they're also pluralism natives because they don't learn things. The word that we used to talk about was sheltered in uh, Mm -hmm. when I was growing up evangelical. And in the 90s, I had friends in my evangelical junior high and high school who were more sheltered than me. There was a genuine difference between my parents. My dad was a therapist. My mom, you know, told jokes with swear words in them. And we we had non-Christian friends and whatever. And my friend Julie that I went to high school with, who like really was sheltered and it was effective and it could be done. The, right. the cat's out of the bag for right. a young person today. I mean, you basically have to restrict the internet Right. a la China, to shelter anybody, <laughs> right? Well, and I want to also just pull – exactly. And I want to pull out one thing that you're also identifying, which is the change of authority, the change of the locus of authority. So if you were born in 1950 and you wanted to find out about religion, you'd probably go to your pastor or priest, you know, your a rabbi. local cleric. Yeah, right. But when I asked my students, where would you go to find out about religion or science or science and religion, I know you can guess the first answer, Right. It's Wikipedia. Wikipedia, or the Google, Internet, Google, whatever. Google, yeah, yeah, any, yeah, any of those. Or YouTube would be another right. one, right? Yeah, YouTube. So all, yeah. all those are the locus of authority. That really changes one's ability to uh, take in the pluralism and to just to swim in pluralism um, in a way that I didn't quite swim in as much you know, until later in life, I would say. So one of the terms you use in another article of yours is this term spiritual tinkerer. Mm-hmm. So spiritual tinkering. So if you have your kind of new age aunt – Right, like uh, who's on Facebook and she's posting. I shouldn't have genderized that, but for the you know whatever, for the sake of the illustration, she's posting stuff about chakras and crystals and and whatever. And then you've got your parents and your other uncles and aunts who like think she's the weird one of the family. 
she's the one who like shops in the metaphysics section at Barnes and Noble. <laughs> and she was always the weird one tinkering around. And it's like you thought, well, there's something about her that's kind of weird or never been settled. Or maybe she had a bad experience in the church. The tinkering aspect is now for young people. That's the norm. And right. it's if they have the friend who goes all in on John Piper and Neil Reformed theology, that's the weird uncle. Right. Who right. like – like wh- why would you get so into this stuff when you – when like there's all these other things and how could you possibly know that you have a purchase on it? It's, it's almost like some of the intellectual and theological humility that I've been arguing for my whole life mm. is being automatically instilled to a greater degree – in these younger generations. And I, it's funny, I haven't thought about that, but like I have to see that as basically a positive in at least in that regard. Of course, there are negatives, which is like less robust community and all that stuff. But Right, right. We can talk um, about all that stuff, but 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 the positive, like you said, is is a humility, I think. And I'm I'm a pastor, so I can make a blanket statement of negativity a negative statement about pastors. We tend to be control freaks. Um, we tend to control the the flock that we have. Um, I've noticed that in the gatherings I've been at. And so this makes us really uncomfortable. I mean, not only are we losing people, so therefore the livelihood that we have um, and the ability of influ- to influence people is reducing and, or being uh, you know problematized. But in addition, we can't control people because they're going to go and they're going to, A, just hear sermons from all over the internet, but B, they're going to like check our facts and they're going to check uh, other religious traditions that they have interest. They're not going to look at us as the people who have the answers. And that, that as a church community thing is a, is a difficult reality. And, and I think you're right. The call is to humility, honestly. It's really interesting. The, one of the episodes, one of the two episodes probably that gets mentioned to me the most by people as having been the most helpful for them is the episode uh, called you have permission to consider all the atonement theories. Mm, hmm. And people say, I didn't know that there were atonement theories, plural. They all thought it was substitutionary? Yeah, penal words? substitutionary atonement only. These are mostly people coming from a Baptist or Reformed kind of tinged background, which is, I don't know, got to be at least half of Protestants in America. And that is so funny to me because, like, hmm. on the one hand, like Zondervan, which is a conservative publisher, right, is the publisher that puts out all those four views, five views – books those are sold at lifeway those are you know i don't know did lifeway close down i don't know um, maybe maybe good riddance but um <laughs> although I, some of your books maybe sorry if you, if you can find them. <laughs> no but like uh you know like those are that's not even a liberal perspective it's right. not like so that's been so interesting to me that individual church family community contexts either are so incurious or have an incentive to ignore the plurality of views, even within conservative Christianity on doctrinal questions. We're not even talking about atheism. We're not talking about Eastern religion. We're right. just saying Christus Victor, right? Uh, satisfaction theory, right? You know, like like right. it's I don't like penal substitutionary atonement is five hundred years old, totally, and the church is two thousand years old. So yeah. it's just like. It's kind of mind-boggling. I think of all of this, if I want to think in terms of market terms, why this podcast grows, why why there are a proliferation of podcasts like this, is that there's just this giant vacuum created by informational gatekeepers in mainstream mm. American Protestantism. Mm. That's interesting. That, like, yeah. thank you guys 
for basically giving me a career <laughs> as a podcaster and eventually a therapist to those people yeah. who are processing through their life because of the insane amount of unnecessary gatekeeping that you did. Probably with the best of intentions. <laughs> I should be clear. I love that. And, uh, you know, I just would affirm that you have some things I don't have. Like, I don't have that growing up with left behind sort of world. Uh, Bless you, Greg. <laughs> well, honestly, I'm thankful I didn't grow up in the church. Um, yeah. And I say that as a Christ, as a Jesus follower. Like, yeah, 18 I, is a good year to find it, right? I didn't have to go through the rebellion. In fact, this yeah. is really off topic, but my rebellion perhaps was against my secular atheist background. Right, exactly. Um, so yeah, you're so, but you're so on target with all that that the gatekeepers have uh, are really stultifying for the people I know. And now I'm going to speak as a Christian. What's really hard for me is I think about when I was this freshman at Berkeley, uh, and I was not even thinking that the Christian message at first was really relevant or interesting or whatever it would speak to me. And we are turning off people who could be interested in the Christian message because we have stultified it and managed it and put it into these little tiny boxes that it was never meant to be. So I know, for example, a lot of people are uh, revisiting universalism. Well, if they knew the history of the church, they'd realize that universalism is incredibly old. I mean, it yeah. goes back to the Eastern Fathers, right? I mean, people don't even know there's an Eastern Orthodox church, for goodness sake, right? So uh, a lot of this is, I think... An, a lack of understanding history. Um, and so, like you said, you're helping people to understand our broader history and also to put that, I think, into the present, which has this pluralistic uh, context for talking about these things. Yeah, one of the hallmarks of American evangelicalism is it is defiantly ahistorical. Right. It right. wants so badly to be, it's just the early church. Right. They give us the Bible, fast forward 2,000 years, and it's us. Yep. Full stop. Right. Nothing that became between those is really that important. Maybe Luther and Calvin, because we have some weird stuff about Catholics. But <laughs> basically, we have a direct route back to the early church, and we are not part of history. We're just doing this thing, and that has really cost. It's really cost them. Right. Um, and of course, it's false. Let's talk about. Let's pivot for our final twenty minutes or so here to the future. Yes. Yeah. So you make a couple of predictions. You're you're very careful. You sent me the the intro chapter to your uh, – or like a summary chapter of your new book. Let's talk about what are those predictions? Like what do you see happening with this younger generation, with the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, et cetera? Well, this is what really fascinates me. I, I have a futurist side to my personality, so I'm always thinking about where to, where to go. And yeah, so that's what that's one of the reasons it connects with me. This I, f I feel quite certain of. There will be a decreasing influence of Christianity and a splintering of American Christian uh, American life, religious life. Uh, I'm using, by the way, religion and spirituality fairly similarly, which I think is the way scholars use it. But more popularly, it would be religious and spiritual life. Yeah, and some psychologists I know like to split them up between spirituality is basically the kind of innate sense of the divine, the 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 lure toward and the drive toward transcendence that everybody has. And religion is like the sort of the codifying of that into repeated action, cognitive content, you know, a community of faith kind of a thing. Yeah. So yeah. which makes a lot of I, sense, too. So either either one works for me. But yeah, um, but when I use religious, I definitely mean that also that side of how we express this desire for something more, you might say. Um, so I think, you know, that's that's going to be hard to undo, and I think there's some reasons that it's getting worse for the Christian church uh, in terms of market share, you might say. 
and it's like every couple of years you just look at the polls and there are fewer and fewer Christians in our country. People identifying as Christians is the actual way to describe right. it. Yeah. Um, so you think that uh, atheism and agnosticism th- – so those have risen a little bit. Right. Um, but not nearly as much as the spiritually unaffiliated have risen. But you actually think that some portion of those people will actually join the ranks of atheism and agnosticism in terms of identifying that way? Is that just because, like we were talking about earlier, the snowball effect of having gay friends or whatever, the more gay friends you have, the easier it is to imagine either coming out or at least supporting your friends because you love them or whatever, the more agnostic and atheist friends you have or leaders or people in the media, the more obvious it is or the easier it is to identify as that as one yourself is it that kind of a thing i think it's a lot of that yeah i mean i i know in my early uh, years in college atheists tended to have an attitude you know they always wanted to do they were more like richard dawkins-esque they were disproving christianity mm-hmm. and i just get you know when i've interviewed students and talked with students they don't seem to have an attitude nearly as much so they'll say i'm an atheist and that's fine. It's kind of like it doesn't need to be said again. And they'll say, you know, if you're a religious person, that's fine too, you know. But it's just not uh, atheism with an attitude. I, and I think a lot of it has come from what you said. It's much more acceptable as a uh, as a as a viewpoint. I mean, we may have an atheist president, you know, if Sanders is elected. I would define him as an atheist or at least agnostic, and though Jewish. He doesn't seem to have a transcendent being that he's looking toward. Yeah, he's secular Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's like, like, that's an amazing change that that's, you know, used to be we associate atheism with immorality. Uh, and here we have a viable presidential candidate who's an atheist. And that's really fast. That's a huge change, which I think underscores what you've identified. Yeah. It's actually interesting if you, <laughs> coming from a certain lens, if you compare his speech at Liberty University mm-hmm. when he was campaigning in 2016 2015 whatever it was with like trump or any of like he he's got a greater command of the bible <laughs> seemingly you're reading my my mail as they used to say yeah absolutely yeah i absolutely agree with you i think it's actually a positive change i think it's actually our country's history for whatever it's worth that atheists have always been have always been part of our country and have always been a part of uh, you know people who can have a voice. So I think that's getting more acceptable again. And I think it'll be there will be some growth, but not as high a percentage of growth as uh, the rise in the nuns. Yes, yeah, so coefficients that- about thirty, about point three, about thirty percent of nuns will become athe- will be atheists, is according to surveys and so on. Okay, interesting. So yeah, this other prediction is that the nuns will continue to increase, and that this will lead to a greater aversion to the culture war debates around science and religion. But I think we're back to your surprises. Simultaneously, more individuals will find their own ways to work out that conflict, right? So I imagine you're just extrapolating from those first two bits of data we talked about. Right. And that the really the strongest component of uh, resistance to science, one of the strongest is conservative Protestants um, in terms of, you know, evolution and now climate change and so on. So as that demographic decreases, this is a little bit more of a shaky prediction or less secure, but I, I believe that means we're going to have a, a decrease in the antipathy between science and religion. Religion, again, defined as this broader spiritual life of a, of a people. I think the X factor there is how will the media landscape change? Mm-hmm. So one thing that's interesting is it seems like Falwell, Franklin Graham, these guys... It's it's unclear to me, 
but it seems like they might even have a louder voice than they had mm-hmm. 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And there are fewer people that follow them now. Mm-hmm. I mean, Liberty is still big, but Franklin Graham's not nearly as popular as his dad was. So it, that's the thing that I don't know. Like, will media splinter and become so individualized that the platform of those people will go down? Like, if people stop watching cable news and just get their stuff on YouTube, well, then, you you know, all of a sudden people have a smaller platform. Or will media find some way to – as if it's like one thing. Will it end up being a, more centralized because it becomes – we get choice exhaustion. You know, I, so that's interesting. And that might right. interplay with it, but it's very hard to predict that. I mean, do you have a sense? Dan, I'd be interested to know what you think on that one. Um uh, I my sense is that it goes to more individuation of feed, basically. Mm-hmm. That's where all the money is. At least at this point, like when you try and talk about polarization and you talk about like people are very understanding of the fact that having a super individualized feed of information and content leads to polarization. Mm-hmm. But I don't see any movement away from actually living that way mm-hmm. because it's still just so much more psychologically rewarding to have that. Right. So, so you can hate read and you can get in comment wars on Facebook and sometimes your aggression goes up and you want to do that. But mostly the comfort of like having the Huffington Post angle on this as opposed to the Breitbart angle is like it's such a giant – it's it's so – Sisyphean, the hit, you have to really be willing to push that rock up the hill to read an article from an opposite political or cultural perspective right. as the one that you have right. to to want to get your information that way. You have to really want to. So I think from a psychological perspective, the market will continue to reward greater and greater individuation of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if that's true, then you could either imagine that Broadly speaking, some leaders or media conglomerates on the left or right or libertarians or whatever, you might break that into five or six groups instead of two groups. One, Some groups will get really good at it and will sort of like command outsized attention or because like with technology, like it's so easy to make this podcast or create YouTube videos or, or even make documentaries now on your iPhone that it will splinter more and it'll be more niche. I, I don't know. I, what The thing I feel most confident about is that it's still going to be a while before people are really motivated to not be polarized. Mm-hmm. And it would probably take like a massive war or something right. because it's it's just too good from a brain chemistry perspective to stay in your silo. Right. I mean it's, it's just like a hundred times more comfortable. And the whole idea that we're motivated by threat I think plays in this – into this a great deal, right? Yeah, that's true. Although, like, I noticed it myself. I'm I'm really averse to threatening media. Mm. Like, I'm really averse to stuff that is I can tell is going at my fear center. Mm. I mm. don't click any of that stuff, and I still don't want to read the Fox News take on something. Interesting. Like, yeah, I block that stuff out either way, and I still just prefer the commentators that I agree with. Yeah. Well, you may so. have you may have emerged uh, beyond what I think is natural. I think a lot of people are motivated by fear. Um, yeah, and, you know, evolutionarily, we're we are rewarded for being over fearful of things, and yep. so I see that happening a lot with the splintering. But I, that's why I'm interested. Like I said, this was the one that was the I was the least sure about, but I believe that it is the direction we're going because of the way my students and others 
uh, as test cases talk about science and religion. When they don't tend to be as hardline with their religious identification, they tend to be more open with either saying, hey, this science is a different thing or science needs to inform what I'm doing. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't seen Christians like that. I want to be clear, but it does. it's a little bit of a judgment against the church and saying so often the church doesn't represent an openness to science, and that, that's troubling to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that openness to science will just increase across the board. I think what I'm talking about is uh, sociopolitical identity. Mm-hmm. So it, mm. cultural identity stuff, yeah. you know, just like on my side of that divide, the temptation to make fun of, you know, Walmart yokels right? and what right. and whatever. And just right. like, it's just so strong. Yeah. And that's not necessarily fear. That's just like tribalism, right? Tribalism. And the and the clean and unclean distinction, the purity thing that goes in our brain. I totally, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Discussed, yeah. Yeah. So we got 10 minutes left, and you you emailed me before we talked today because you were listening to the the End Times episode. And you said, hey, you know, there's actually a connection here that you might not be aware of between sort of End Times prophecy and thinking and artificial intelligence, transhumanism, other kind of futuristic ideas. I think we, we got to do that for a little bit. I hope so, yeah. We, we owe absolutely. it to ourselves. <laughs> So why don't why don't you just start with like what were what were the connections you were making as you were listening to that part one episode of the End Times Anxiety series? Uh, well, I loved it, and um, it was really interesting to me because my wife watched A Thief in the Night in her youth group um, yeah. at, a, at a by the way a mainline Presbyterian church. Um, interesting, which is really fascinating. Yeah, um, so uh, it's just fun to have that kind of personal connection. It wasn't my own thing, but it was her thing, and. And then, because I'm right now teaching a class on the end of the world scenarios, um, I recognize that it's just such a part of our American culture, um, millenarianism or apocalyptic thought. Or, I mean, there's lots of different slices of how that actually works. But now Wait, we're... Le- yeah. So actually, don't go any further yet. Yeah. So it's a part of our... You say it's a part of our American culture. So does that go all the way back? Like, how far back does that go, that that's been sort of part and parcel of American worldview? Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly we have, even in the Puritan uh, Puritans, like, say, Jonathan Edwards, who I studied some, so I'll talk about him, instead of Puritans in general, you have this idea of a progress that God is bringing about. Uh, he's most, most, more post-millennial, right? So we're experiencing the millennium by our actions now to bring about, right. to, before the return of Christ. But it really, I think, the, one of the key events, I believe it's 1833, it's in the 30s, when Miller predicted the end of the world and gave it a date, where we really see the millennial mil- millenarianism arising that we can date when it's going to happen, you know, and it, it's, it's here. It's just about here. So, but then he got it wrong, right? So what's interesting <laughs> to me is like, that's interesting, but like you, one version of that history is, and then it stops because a bunch of people believed it, got it wrong. Okay. We're now immunized to that, right, but that's right. not really what happens. No, it isn't what happens. And in some ways, I, please feel free to add, correct, whatever, supplement what I'm saying. But I think with the emergence of dispensationalism and Darby's Schofield Bible, uh, and especially especially premillennial rapture theology that really took root with evangelicalism in the 20th century, then you begin to see something much more significant about the actual prediction of the end of the world. Yeah, the kind of thing that, that I grew up in really explodes into America in 1970 with late great planet Earth. But had in terms of the popular consciousness, but had been a fairly, I don't know, decently well-regarded part of 
I don't know, preachers and theologians from the 20s. I think the 20s is 1920s is when the Schofield Bible comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's history. Let's talk about the future. So yeah. we'll, that, we'll save that for uh, future episodes. So what's going on? AI, transhumanism, end times. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and I can't wait. Well, they, I mean, the connection you know, that I, I'm making with this end time stuff is now we have at least two major strands. And I'll just state, you know, say one is the whole climate change issue in the Anthropocene where you have yeah. the ending of our planet or at least many of the species of our planet. That's one apocalyptic scenario. And then the second one that's related particularly to this uh, growth of technology is transhumanism or and the singularity. So the singularity is where human right. intelligence and computer intelligence will merge in a seamless way. Uh, that's, you know, Ray Kurzweil being the most prominent author uh, on that. And that, um, that will uh, allow us to transcend our human limitations and thus be trans, uh, have a transhuman experience. I don't understand. I don't know a lot about this world, but it would transcend. Yeah, I guess we could transcend significantly, but it doesn't become infinite, right? Because eventually whatever server is holding our consciousness, like will, you know, the sun will explode or something. Right. If there are creatures on other in other solar systems, other galaxies who have achieved a singularity, let's say one million years ago, people X achieved a singularity. Well, eventually their star is going to explode too. So one of the things that's interesting to me about the end times expectation is that it transcends the physical world. Mm. God ends the universe Mm -hmm. and then does something else. That's kind of the only way you get like a true next thing. Right. Because if it's based in this world, I think the kind of end times predictors that I grew up around – would say that doesn't count. Mm. We're talking about something better and more efficacious. You know what I mean? Right, right. Well, yeah, I think most of these are dystopian. In other words, they are non-good. Rather, they're bad. They're not utopian. I mean, there's a couple ways this could splinter. One would be the kind of Matrix, the Matrix, um, and the Terminator idea that machines take over because they're smarter and we become their slaves. Right. Uh, and the Matrix then also feeds into the, I guess, the second one, which is maybe we just are computer simulation and we suddenly just that's revealed to us in some way or another um, oh interesting yeah and, and so that would be another kind of apocalyptic scenario that well we which just to reckon- me sounds like god and heaven or i mean the funny thing about simulation theory is it's like oh you mean like god right yeah. i mean basically like now maybe not yahweh or something but like right yeah, so like a creator god or a superhuman, right? It's greater than human. I mean, yeah, well, it would appear to us as God, and then maybe there's something that created that, you know, whatever. Right. If I mean, this whole thing is a simulation, then the simulator is God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and greater than us. And there's this. Uh, I remember there's a guy, Nick Bostrom, guy. There's a philosopher at Oxford University, <laughs> a little bit more than just a guy, Nick yeah, Bostrom, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Who actually has a whole uh, elaborated version of this, what I would call a matrix philosophy. And I remember Brian Greene commenting, the physicist Brian Greene, like it kind of makes some. Uh, I think in his language, some pimply teenager in another sphere in charge of our reality. It kind of, it's just sort of, for him, it made it a lot more understandable. But if that guy just pushes the button, it's the apocalyptic side of our, uh, of the end times, right? right? We'll just end. It'll be over. It would just be over, over. Yeah. Yeah. There is a strain of Christian theology, though, that's in the kind of Tehar de Chardin mm-hmm. process theology vein. 
that anticipates something that they call the omega point. Right. And there's some people who think, well, that is maybe that is the singularity mm. that like some. Th- so it is a utopian version of AI singularity and that that God will lure us to doing that well. Right. Basically, like eventually, even if there's some false moves and perhaps it's billions of years in the future or, you know, I just watched this YouTube video that was like a condensing of the amount of time that physicists currently believe the universe will last. Yeah. And, you know, up to now is like, I don't know, you know, a billionth of a percent mm. of the total life of the universe, mm. which is just mind boggling. Yeah. But maybe there's a lot of trial and error, but like there's a lot of time. For that trial and error in, in God's perspective, this stuff is just so mind-bending. But but perhaps like through technology somehow construed is how God brings about the millennium and, and the next age, mm-hmm. um, the new heavens and new earth. I mean, what if the new heavens and new earth are virtual in a way that we can't – we don't – like if I could live in a virtual world that I could not tell the difference, right. that it was virtual, right? how's that not the new heaven and new earth? Right. I mean like right. I think that would qualify. Right. Now, I don't know how we get – like it would only be the people who are alive long enough to do that. So that's not quite accomplishing all of the uh, eschatological requirements or whatever right. for Christian theology. But right. who knows? I mean I don't know. Unless mind and consciousness – is all connected and is actually the primary stuff of the universe, not matter, then maybe there is a sense in which we participate. I don't know. I mean, it gets like incredibly speculative and it seems like we should be like smoking a bowl or something. To talk about this. <laughs> exactly. I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> like it's that kind of topic, but like, I don't know. What do you, you just respond to all of what I just, I, I, thought that, I just thought it was really fascinating what you said. And I, there was a book by Margaret Wertheim, who is a science and religion writer, and she has said that the presence of the internet uh, allows has allowed us to understand heaven in a new way, essentially, as this non-physical, at least a physical reality that is not tied specifically to our physical being. In, hmm. uh, you know, like it's different for us. It's a whole new reality. So that that I think is really powerful. Um, I I would say, in addition to what you've put out there, that. I think um, this idea of the end of the world, what fascinates me is, is that just a human thing that gets different expressions or is it that we get schooled in it and therefore we have it in our humanity? And I I would say it's some level of relationship between the two. Nature and, and nurture both basically, y- this expectation of the end. Yeah, and I think the first part comes, the nature part, in my this is just my own speculation, um, but it comes from the idea that we know we're going to die so we extrapolate that to the universe and we say, well, at some point the universe is going to die too. That makes sense. But there is something fundamentally irrational about any human being believing that they will witness the end. Mm-hmm. There's right. something mathematically off about that. Well, it's like- no matter how bad things get, even if the Cold War – in it's 1980 and the Cold War explodes into nuclear holocaust around the world. Not everybody dies. I mean, it's not like right. everyone dies. Right. Uh, now, of course, you could say, well, that counts as experience in the end, some cataclysmic thing that includes my death. But like for the most part, even if you're a young Earth creationist and you think that there have been humans around for 6,000 years, you still got a pretty small chance of seeing the end of that. <laughs> right. If you admit that we've had anatomically 
modern humans for 200,000 years, then it's even less likely to happen, right? Right. right. So wh- what do you think is going on there? Like that's something I'm interested in. How can we be so confident with such slim odds? Well, I think we're egoistic. You know, I mean, I think we've centered the world around ourselves, honestly. One of the things about the rapture theology, it seems to me, that plays into sinful nature, if we want to use the theological term, is that it, it's about how, it's about me. You know, I'm going to make it out of the tribulation. I'm going to make it to heaven. I am going to be okay. And so I think that's why we're willing to say we're going to be here when it happens. Now, of course, some of that comes from our text as well. I mean, Jesus grew up in an apocalyptic environment, and so there is a a way in which we understand that from our biblical text, that the end is near. And we're taught that as well. So I think it's a, it's again, that it's that kind of nature nurture thing. I think it's natural for us in a, and maybe in a negative way, but it's also natural because, or cultural because of the way that we have had the, the scriptures taught to us. Yeah. I just, I pulled up my uh, Google doc for working on that series and I just typed in, First of all, it's ego. It's egoistic. Mm. It's egotistical, and we are that way. Secondly, the text speaks that way. And then third, American Protestantism wants a plain reading of the text. Right. And if you do a plain reading of the text, you go, "The end is coming." Which it's kind of crazy to me that you can just suspend your knowledge that it was written two thousand years ago. <laughs> but you, but if you are thoroughly and sufficiently socialized into looking at your text that way. And if you, I think the more important thing is if you practice reading and applying your text that way in your own Bible study, every Sunday at church, every Wednesday at youth group, whatever, then it just becomes second habit to go to just apply. I'll apply this to my life. Right. And I'll ignore the fact that this was, this obviously didn't come to pass or it had, you know, it it must be analogical or something because, it's been 2,000 years. Right. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, obviously a lot to talk about on all this stuff, but I do think that technology is giving a whole new angle to uh, this ongoing apocalyptic uh, strand in American culture. Yeah. Well, I will. I might have to have you back for that series uh, when, I, when I get around to doing the interviews for that. But in the meantime, Greg, thank you so much. What a fascinating conversation. Mm, uh, I really, I really, really loved it. Um, I'll have links in the show notes to your work, the HuffPost article, your most recent book, and anything else you'd like me to include in there? Uh, I th- definitely this organization that I, I'm a part of, sci- or I'm a co I guess founder of Science for the Church, where we really want churches to engage with science as a resource for spiritual growth. So, yeah, Science for great. the Church would be great. All right, so those three things will be in the notes. Greg, have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You do the same. Bye-bye. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation. He is available for podcast editing work, and his email address is in the show notes. In those notes also, I've got a link to Greg's Huffington Post piece and his new book, Negotiating Science and Religion in America, but also an older book of his, Mere Science and Christian Faith, the new one is like an academic press. It's a little bit more expensive. You can like rent it on Kindle for 10 bucks or so. Uh, but Mere Science and Christian Faith is just like a $10 book, full stop. So if you wanted a, a less expensive intro into his work, that link's there, as well as a link for Science for the Church, especially if you are a clergy person or involved in ministry. That's a great resource. 
again, the Patreon, if you'd like to join, patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. I also, now that my son has been born, he's just turned three months old uh, on Saturday, I have my Instagram link in the show notes in case you want to see funny pictures and videos of him. He is insanely cute, and I almost exclusively post about him now, although occasionally other things. Anyway, I guess that's also part of being quarantined is we're not really going anywhere. So all there is is just Soren and Jaffrey and I. That's it. Okay, I'll stop rambling. Uh, We'll see you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening.